morning, everybody. Thank, thank you very much for coming. Um, this, this presentation um, deals with the, the case for animal values, which are currently absent in our definition of, of evidence-based veterinary medicine. Um, and so, certainly compared to the human side, the, um, it, it, where, where patient values are quite central to the practice of evidence-based medicine, they are absent in most definitions of, our, of, of veterinary um, evidence-based medicine. And so what I'm going to do today is set out a, um, a case for their inclusion and also look at how, with, with some case examples, how we might apply patient values in our everyday work. Um, hopefully by the end you'll disagree with me quite a lot um, because this is an ethics talk and so there's no real right answers and um, it's more of a stimulation for, for debate really. Um, there will be lots of questions, um, especially the why question, um, and I won't give you many answers, but I'll try and outline a few things. So, um, as we'll all be aware of, the definition of evidence-based medicine from the human side, um, and this is uh, Sackett's um, definition, basically it works on three limbs, so best external evidence, um, clinical expertise, and patient values. By contrast, evidence-based veterinary medicine um, also has best relevant evidence, it also has clinical expertise, um, but we tend to, we, with this definition from the, from the group at Nottingham, um, we are looking at the circumstances of each patient, which doesn't explicitly involve their values. So, as I've just said, so patient values. And so a few questions about patient values. Do they exist? Um, I'm just talking rubbish. Do they matter if they do exist? And are they anything new, or, is, or am I just rebranding welfare or some other, some other concept? So, to step back a little bit, what I thought we'd do is consider what we are trying to achieve in veterinary medicine. It's quite a deep question, but what is the point of what we do? Um, are we trying to really just reduce or relieve suffering? Are we trying to treat disease? Are we trying to restore health, wherever health may be? Are we, are we making animals feel better? Are we making ourselves feel better? as a society and as an individual, or are we just doing it because they're quite cute animals? So my personal take on, take on what we are trying to do when we are vets in, in veterinary medicine is we're trying to restore um, in disease states, ensure by protecting animals and, promote, and promoting well-being. Now, well-being encompasses physical and mental well-being. Um, and there's three, three limbs to this, um, in my mind. So, ensuring survival, first off, I, th I think um, it's incontrovertible that animals have a, a, an intrinsic desire to survive. Um, avoiding suffering as much as possible, or at least um, contextualizing suffering in reducing it as much as possible. And opportunities to flourish. So opportunities for animals to enjoy a good life. Animals are all individuals, um, and so it may well be that what one, what one cat wants compared to another one is very different. And we, I think we, underlying all this is, is why, why do we want to do this? Why do we want to be vets? Why, why do we want to um, restore health to animals? So, on one aspect, on one side of the side of the argument, it's because they have an extrinsic ex, extrinsic value, um, and this quote from from Gandhi quite captures that. In that, 
extrinsic value of animals tends to um, form, a, form, form an evidence base for a judgment on the way a society works and how moral that society is. So this, this links into philosophers such as Kant and Descartes. Um, the reason why we treat animals well, or we try and restore their health, is because it, it makes us better people. Um, there's a, another, thought, another thought stream is that reducing suffering is just generally a good thing, whether that's in a, a person or an animal. Um, and there is a contractarianism, which I'm not going to go into too much. And I think extrinsic value tends to be um, crystallised most in our, in our treatment of production animals. And then the other side of the coin is that animals have intrinsic value. So, so we want to restore their health, um, their mental and physical health, because it matters to them. And so that, this is essentially saying that animals have a moral value and that their feelings and their desires have a moral significance. And so there's two, there's two general approaches to this. Um, is utilitarianism, where animals, um, the moral status of animals should be given equal consideration. Um, or there's deontology, which is more of a rights-based approach from Reagan, in that there are certain rights which should trump any um, wider consideration. But why do we do this generally? Well, partly for societal values, so um, partly cultural, is that we, we you know, as a, as, a, as a Western society, we value um, treating animals well, or, and we value making them better when they're ill. But I think underlying most of it is the fact that animals are sentient. And so this comes from Bentham, um, which most people will be aware of, is that um, what we're interested in is the animal's capacity to suffer. And suffering is under, underlined by the fact that they, that they are sentient. And so this is a definition from Broom, whereby the sentience is the capacity to have feelings and for the animal to recognise those feelings and for those feelings, therefore, to matter. Uh, Webster defines it a little bit more simply, uh, the capacity to have feelings that matter. Um, and then the, the, Dork the Dawkins take on it is the fact that animals have feelings and they have subjective feelings underlies all of animal welfare. So in terms of practising ethical veterinary medicine, um, this is, a, again, the, my definition of what, of what we are trying to achieve. And so well-being in this context um, can be taken as welfare. And we want to try and do this in the most consistent way we can. And so just to ratchet up the ethics a little bit more, this is my own, own personal opinion, is that if we are going to treat animals and try and make them better, it is um, more important in animals to make sure that what we do is beneficial, um, certainly in any calculation of cost benefits from suffering during the intervention. It's more important that in animals that we know and we can say that the, that the intervention is going to be beneficial. And it's more important than in, than, than in humans because animals are always the subject of interventions. They can't consent, they can't withdraw, they can't explain their position, they can't explain their feelings. We can interpret them, but they, they can't directly report to us. In veterinary medicine, there is some suffering. If we define suffering as an unpleasant experience lasting longer than a few seconds, then suffering is, is, is inevitable in most veterinary interventions. 
Possibly more so in humans because animals, as far as we're aware, their mental lives are, are immediate and so they can't rationalise future gain against current suffering. And so, again, just to make the point, suffering has to be worth it. And so, what is the best way of ensuring this? So, evidence-based veterinary medicine. The philosophy of evidence-based medicine is that it, it replaces what was thought to be a rationalist conception of, of medicine in that it was um, based on pathophysiology, the knowledge of normal, and then theorizing from that. And it replaces that with empiricism. And so it's been variously um, ca ca categorized as positivist, empiricist, objectivist, consequentialist, the labels which we're not going to go into. And so the, the main focus and thrust of evidence-based medicine is, is that it's the focus on what works rather than why it works. And so it's supposed to be more scientific, more objective. It's supposed to remove the um, subjective element of, of, the, of the clinician to a certain extent. And so there's, there's an ethical case to be made for, evident, for using evidence-based medicine. And this, is, this, this, this sums it up in that as vets, we have an ethical obligation to make sure that any treatment we prescribe is, is, under, is underrun by a, a good base of, of objective evidence as far as possible. The RCVS do um, concur with this, and so they, they align fitness to practice with um, essentially practicing evidence-based medicine. And so we can form a... a, a <coughs> two logical premises, which are beloved of philosophers. So the first one is one that we discussed. We ought to pursue the most effective means of achieving well-being. Evidence-based veterinary medicine is the most effective means. Therefore, we ought to pursue evidence-based veterinary medicine. So we have to ask the question then, is evidence-based medicine the most effective way? So there's two ways that, that it's been justified in the literature and, and more widely. There's an epistemological justification in that the, the philosophy and the way that we do evidence-based medicine is more reliable and therefore is going to be more effective. Or there's a practical or pragmatic justification which is more empirical. We'll just examine these quickly. So the epistemological justification is essentially based on the fact that external evidence um, is more reliable the more, the more reliable the ways of producing it are. So, as we get more objective um, and we remove um, clinician involvement um, and we can, and, and can randomise and blind studies, then the, pro, the, the fact that we're doing that makes the results more reliable. So more objective, much more reliable results. Um, we, can we can probability the truth um, in a scientific way so therefore it's more effective. There's numerous arguments against this. So objectivity in terms of scientific objectivity is a myth, which has been covered by um, Kuhn and Feyerbend. Um, and so the fact that we are studying things means that, they, that there is a, always a subjective element in deciding what to study and what to measure. Statistics, you know, where does P less than 0.05 come from? Nobody really knows. Um, we may, in studies, there is, a, there is a limited amount that we can get from frequency statistics. The hierarchy, there's no actual evidence for the hierarchy um, in terms of w whether things are more reliable at the top than at the bottom. Moving this subject is, is, is usually impossible. So there's no a priori justification for evidence-based medicine being superior. 
So then we can look at a, a posteriori evidence or a posteriori arguments that say, well, okay, we can show that evidence-based medicine is, empirically we can show that it's better. So in the, in the human field, there's been lots of successes from the application of evidence-based medicine, certainly in, in, the, in the 80s and 90s with AIDS patients and, other, and the treatment of asthma. There's been some veterinary success, so certainly the, um, the, the study of mitral valve disease in, in Cavaliers is, is a notable one. And the justification is if we get more evidence, then we'll see that it's more effective once we've got the evidence. And also that we have to remember evidence-based medicine isn't just about the hierarchy. It's the, that is one part of it, the external evidence, but we also have clinical expertise and patient circumstances. And so clinical expertise can fill the gaps that we have in, in the evidence. So responses to this, well, um, by evidence-based medicine can be hoisted by its own petard in a way in that there's no actual empirical evidence that it is better than a non-evidence-based approach, whatever a non-evidence-based approach may be. Um, in, our, in our sphere, I think the, the plea to we just need more evidence is, 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 is implausible, um, and the current evidence is too fuzzy in either being underpowered or um, in, the con in not being able to make strong conclusions from it to recommend uh, uh, the EBM, EBVM approach is currently conceived. Um, and I think the main problem from, from a definition perspective is that clinical expertise is a completely different skill set to what we need for um, synthesizing and interpreting evidence. And so um, it's not been very well addressed, it's certainly in the human side and, and, and hardly at all in the veterinary side and as to how we apply clinical expertise. And, um, and it's, I think it's, it's unlikely on our current philosophy of evidence-based medicine to, to be definable in a way which is, uh, meets the objective criteria. So having made the case sort of against evidence-based veterinary medicine as is, um, we need to do something. You know, we, need to, we need to treat animals, so what, what's, the what's the best way of doing this and what's the most ethical way of doing this? And so this is, a, this, this is where animal patient values come in. And so how I, what I conceive is to be a, a, the most ethical way of practicing veterinary medicine is a combination of animal values at the top and the use of ex the best external evidence to make decisions about individual patients, so that's evidence-based medicine or the best parts of evidence-based medicine, to produce a, a conception of a values-based medicine with the use of evidence. And so, what, so we, to get onto values as such, because I think it's a difficult concept to, to just um, accept straight off. Um, so the dictionary definition of what a value is, is, is one's judgment of what is important in life. Um, the evidence-based medicine from the human side, their definition is important, that it's unique, um, it's individual, um, and, it, and it, it deals with the, with the psychosocial side of, of patients. So I think a, a useful way of, of, of conceiving of animal values is there's been a lot of work on values-based medicine on the human side and modest foundationalism, which essentially says that there are certain foundational values that people have, and to, to, to practice medicine ethically, we have to appreciate and try and protect and promote these where possible. And so these um, are survival, um, avoidance of suffering or mitigating of suffering, and an opportunity to flourish. And 
quite nicely, this maps on almost perfectly onto what, the, what my previous definition of, of what we should be doing in veterinary medicine is, in that you know, we, we should be aiming to aid survival where, where possible, avoid suffering or mitigate suffering, and also give the animals a chance for a good life. So, um, to, to misquote Bentham, is um, what the question that we should be asking when we're doing veterinary interventions is not about what the animal is in terms of a, you know, a, a reason being, but what they value or what they may value. So we need a conception of what they, what they value and, if possible, how much they might value it. And I think there's two approaches to this. There's an evidence-based approach using welfare science and work on emotions and cognitive bias. Um, but I think we need a combination with a philosophical approach because the evidence-based approach will only get us so far. So, in a lot of welfare science, certainly in the last, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been more of a move to um, promote the importance of, of animal emotions, which were previously from the sort of behaviorism era were considered to be unimportant. And for some people, and I think I agree with this, that, that welfare is about the subjective feelings of animals. And so we can, we can, we can study emotions um, in, in, in animals um, in an indirect way. So there's, we, can, we can look at discrete emotions where we control the environment, and we can look at changes in posture, facial expression, vocalizations, and from there we can, we, we can then make the epistemic leap to what an animal may be feeling. Um, and probably more, a more sophisticated way is to look at cognitive biases and mood, um, which tends to look at the whole animal rather than just discrete emotions. And there's a fair bit of work being done on this in welfare, um, but there's quite a bit way to go. However, emotions aren't just, values aren't just emotions. Um, emotions are a component of values and their realization. And there's a, there's a, there is a, a limit to what we can know and, so, and this links into the problems of other minds, which is you know, a, a problem for people as well. And so we need a, bit, we need a philosophical framework, I think, um, to be able to conceive of values. And so in terms of ascribing values, I think we can do it in the absence of the animal knowing that they have values, just this, in the same way as, as we, can, we can give moral consideration to animals, even though they, they're not moral agents as such. And so to actually sort of drill down into what values may be. So survival will just take, take, take as granted. And so the two main ones are avoidance of suffering and <coughs> flourishing, flourishing or the Aristotle eudaimonia. And so I think the, the best way of thinking about these things are conceptions of a good life and what a good life may be for animals. And so there's three main theories um, related to this. So there's hedonism, perfectionism, and preference theory. Hedonism um, is, is a utilitarian Benthamite um, conception of a good life, whereby the, the good experiences and the pleasurable experiences should outweigh by as much as possible the frustrating and painful experiences. Preference theory is, is from Singer, which is a more considered um, form of hedonism in that we can't, just, we can't just let animals do what they want because they, they sometimes don't know what's best for them. And so, it avoids, you know, the fat Labradors and the, you know, and uh, other things such as that. Um, and 
animals can't consider, so we have to consider for them. And so that's listen. Perfectionism is, is more from the ro from, from rolling side, whereby this is, perfectionism and naturalism are uh, interchangeable in that a good life for animals is one that is as close as possible to its natural life. Um, and so this is distinct from hedonism in that it's thought by people who subscribe to this view that the fact the, the very experience of living a natural life is is pleasurable and good in itself rather than the, rather than there being natural actual pleasurable experiences otherwise it'd be it'd be hedonism and so um in terms of attributing these 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 values to animals i think a critical anthropomorphic approach now anthropomorphism has has been a dirty word in the past um but the processes that we go through to anthropomorphize are what we go through when we attribute emotions and mind states to other people. And so I think it's a perfectly valid um, and quite powerful way of, of attributing emotional lives and values to animals. We've also got to consider evolutionary biology um, in terms of brain structure, um, neuroscience, neurobiology, um, and the, the, the similarities that we have to, to animals. Um, and the, the, on the balance of probability, they, they probably do have emotions and they probably do have conceptions of pleasure, um, which are similar to ours in a way. And we can back this up by welfare science to a certain extent. So values in this, in the, in the, in this values-based medicine, it, we are us, we're using it as an epistemic tool. So we're using values to estimate what the animal might want from a veterinary intervention um, as defined by the values that we ascribe to them. And so different animals will have different values. Not to forget about evidence-based veterinary medicine. In this conception of, of values-based medicine, it does have a role, but that role is restricted to the, the, the synthesis and the critical appraisal of external evidence. And we're removing clinical expertise um, and patient values from that. And so just to look at how this might work in practice, the thought process. So this is a cat which was presented about a year ago to our hospital. Um, it's got a nice tibial fracture. Um, it was brought in by an inspector. It's a stray cat. And so looking at the x-ray, you know, youngish cat. An evidence-based approach, the evidence would be something in the region of surgery, such as a plate or possibly a pin and a wire. Six weeks cage rest, and you'd be looking with a competent surgery about 90% success. We could just opt to cage rest it for four weeks, probably lower success, or we could amputate, which would be... But this cat was feral, untouchable. And so there's a high degree of suffering likely in this cat with continued contact with humans. So if we're thinking about cage resting for four to six weeks, um, then we have to take that into consideration. So what's the best thing to do? What's the best approach? What's the best intervention for this cat? What's the most ethical thing we can do? So looking at values, we can ask what are these cats' values or what does it value most? interchangeable survival so its perception of survival will be will be um will be quite heightened in that it be being in close contact with humans it will probably feel threatened by human contact avoid suffering suffering is going to be extreme um whilst it's in contact with humans there's also the suffering the pain um which is mitigatable by um, by drugs and everything else but there will be some suffering involved in fixing the leg but I think one of the main things is its opportunity to flourish is severely restricted. So this is a free-ranging cat. Um, and in terms of 
considering what its values may be and what its conception of a good life, I think perfectionism fits quite well with this cat in that it lives in a wild state um, and it, it's, it, it, it is likely to flourish if it can show its normal range of behaviour such as hunting and defending its territory, reproducing. We have to consider as well, the values may change over time, may become accustomed to humans to a certain extent, but I think the main thing is that a strictly evidence-based veterinary medicine approach fails to appreciate the values of this cat explicitly or implicitly. Um, there's no specific studies for this type of intervention um, in a feral cat. Um, and following studies blindly, which none of us really do, but it potentially could ignore this cat's values. So we have to make a decision so what to do. Um, amputation and release with the, with the proviso it may inhibit its previous lifestyle so its opportunity to flourish might be diminished in the future. Euthanasia, um, that's obviously going to breach our value of survival um, and also prevent any future pleasurable experiences or, or flourishing. Um, and it is a little bit of a dead hand animal values but we have to weigh up somehow whether the, the amount of suffering involved in, in doing something to this cat and the, and the um, the, the future um, health of this cat and, and um, welfare of the cat um, may be outweighed by it may outweigh any um, any positive things we can do. So, euthanasia maybe. And so this is a bit more of a uh, that was more of an extreme case. This is more of a regular case. So a little cavalier um, comes in with heart failure due to mitral valve disease. So evidence-based approach, we can do medical therapy and there's strong evidence for the use of, of, of certain drugs in this um, and we can restore a normal quality of life within a day or so in most cases. At the more extreme end we can consider surgery, so there, is, there are papers published on mitral valve repair replace. Now the, the, the question here is which is the best intervention for this dog and so it's difficult to weigh up these studies in terms of an individual um, if we just take out um, you know, considerations of, 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 of how much an owner can afford and everything else. But the surgical replacement, um, it's got a high, high mortality rate in most, in most of the studies. Um, the survival is longer, um, but the, the recovery is much lower. And so, how do we go about it? Well, we can ask again, what are these dog values? Or what does it value most? Survival. Now, um, survival, that's the wrong way around. So surgical therapy would, be, would, would give, a, give the dog a longer survival time if it survives the surgery. Um, avoid suffering, so there is going to be some suffering involved with cracking the chest open um, and so medical therapy giving tablets is likely to produce a, a much lower suffering level. And in terms of this dog's opportunity to flourish, I think in an owned animal um, whereby they, they don't have worries about finding food or defending territory and things like that. I think hedonism um, and using the hedonistic conception of, of a good life is the, is, the, um, is the one to go for. So this, this dog probably values you know, the presence of its owner being in a familiar environment, its routine, the treats, the security that it has. So in this case, I think it's more straightforward. So by considering this dog's values, we can say that medical therapy is, is probably... Um, is, is the best way of, of, of respecting and promoting this dog's values, even though um, it may shorten its life compared to surgical therapy. So this is a, a personal case. It's my mother's dog, um, uh, which had a uh, cruciate rupture, 40 kilo lab. Uh, it's overweight, um, 
elderly owners who can't control it very well. So an evidence-based approach, um, this is a bit of a simplification, but it would tend to be that TPLO or TTA rather than a lateral suture would be, um, would be more, like to, more like to be successful um, in the long term. And so in terms of deciding what to do with my mother's dog, consider the values. So avoiding suffering would be reducing the time away from the owners, separation anxiety, and minimize the number of revisits and, and complications which may be um, present in, in surgeries. Again, I think this, is a, this dog lives a hedonistic lifestyle, so not, not a natural lifestyle. And so in terms of its values, what we, what we want to do is get him back swimming and walking um, and interacting. So I think in this case, the balance of values is, is such that a lateral suture was considered more suitable and he's doing very well. And so how do we, moving it on, how do we now start to integrate values into, into, into the whole of, of, of medicine? And certainly I think research has a big part to play in this. So the studies at the moment deal in populations and statistical significance. Now in the human, human side, there's an increasing um, tendency to, to look at quality of life with studies, whereas we tend to look at surrogate outcomes and survival times and things, which do have quality of life um, uh, factors in them. But I think a, a specific measure of, what, um, of, of the quality of life from an intervention um, would be very useful. And so, and I think, we, I think it's easy to shy away from this because it's difficult it's difficult to define them um, absolutely, and it's difficult, and, it, and, it, and we're introducing a subjective element into what is what's traditionally been an objective um, pursuit. So the practicalities of values, um, I'm not a big fan of frameworks. I think um, we're intelligent enough to be able to just assess an animal's behavior and nature from when we interact with it, and we can apply the relevant model of hedonism or perfectionism. There is some work on numerical weighting of outcomes and um, interventions, which is um, in its infancy, but it may be something that we can look at in the future. Um, some counter-arguments against values, after all this, is um, it, it comes down to the other minds thing. How do we know what a, what a bat is feeling? So this is a classic paper from 74 by Nagel. And so we can't access other animals' minds because if we accessed other animals' minds, we would there or by definition be that animal and we wouldn't have anything to compare it to. Um, so some people will, so some arguments again, the, another argument against this is this, this is just a, a fancy way of describing evidence-based veterinary medicine and we're, what we're looking at is just, we're, we're just prioritizing patient values in that. Um, but I think, I think it's something more than that because I don't think there's any mechanism currently in evidence-based veterinary medicine to incorporate patient values. Um, and I think there is a, a requirement with the limitations of evidence-based medicine to, to, to resist the scientism um, and the objectivism which um, can pervade it. And so the other thing is, are we just talking about welfare, in which case we're just putting a different name on it? I don't think we are. Welfare is the, is the, is the, is the well-being of the whole animal, I think. Values can be defined as external attributions to, to animals that attempt to define what is most important to an animal, including survival, avoiding and suffering in eudaimonia. They're individual, um, they change from animal to animal and over time, um, and it uses welfare science 
but it embraces the subjective, the critical anthropomorphic approach, which we use in everyday life to increase epistemic yield. And, um, and that's it. So any questions? <laughs>